I have these two oranges, and I promise you I'm going to explain to them what they mean in just a second. But like a good teacher, I'm just going to wait and wait and let you try to figure it out. Hey, we're going to continue in our series of Mark. And so if you guys have a Bible, why don't you go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 22 today. And if you don't have a Bible, why don't you go ahead and raise your hand and keep it raised really high. And then one of our ushers will be able to hand you out a copy of God's Word. Just go ahead and keep them raised really high. And then if you don't own a Bible, please keep the one that we're handing out to you. It is our gift to you so that you can grow in an understanding and knowledge of who Jesus is. Um, quick reminder, we are pausing on our series of Mark after today, and so the next two weeks we will have our vision series, and so um, it's kind of imperative that we're here as a whole congregation to be able to address the things of what does it mean to be a part of Redemption Tempe, who we are, um, where we are at um, in terms of our body life, and where we are at in our financial campaign in terms of purchasing the property that we are a part of, um, and so forth. So a lot of important things that we'll be talking about over the next two weeks, and so looking forward to it. So we'll see you guys on the 22nd and the 29th. So the Gospel of Mark, we've been traveling through this series, and it's been a lot of fun so far, looking at the life of Jesus. Well, we said that Mark wrote this letter on, on behalf of First Peter, and he wrote it to begin to teach us, explain to us, tell us that Jesus is the Son of God who is here to establish his kingdom, and it was good news for all who would trust and believe in him. And he began to show what this kingdom looks like and what this kingdom would eventually look like um, by showing his miracles being able to cast out demons, showing his miracles to be able to heal, to say when his kingdom is fully arrived and established, that these things will be no more. And then what Jesus started doing is he started calling people to follow him. And then last week there was a particular person named Levi and whom he called, and Levi and all his friends who were, who were classified as outcasts and as sinners by the religious people. And what Jesus showed us is that in this, he was expanding the kingdom to anybody, those who grew up around religion, those who didn't grow up around religion, but anybody who would follow him. And so we have this scene of Jesus hanging out and eating with tax collectors and sinners, and it really upset the religious people because they didn't understand. And what we left off with was the implication of last week's message was that God does not um, help those who help themselves, but he helps those who acknowledge their helplessness. And so Jesus now, in light of that, the religious people around him, and in this context, they can't figure him out. Because there were all these renewal groups that were happening at that time, and these were people who were Jewish people who were trying to be legit followers of God. And so you had people like the Essenes, you had the Sadducees, and you had these people called the Pharisees, and they all thought that Jesus was just basically starting a new religious denomination, but he was actually shattering the charts. In fact, there was no category that the people can put Jesus in, right? Because, because in one sense, we said this last week, that he was far too liberal for the conservatives. Like they, they're like, that's just too much, right? He's eating with tax collectors and prostitutes. He's hanging out with them in their party scene. He's like, here's my cup, put some liquor in it. And, and, and he's with them all. And they, they, they're just like, we can't, we can't have that. But on the flip side, he's far too conservative for the liberals. Because he believes in a literal understanding of the Bible. He believes in a, in a heaven and hell. He believes that there's one way to know God, and it's through him. And so nobody can really figure Jesus out. And yet to those who understand their need, and to those who are sick of religious systems that just weigh them down, to those who are looking for new life, they begin to follow him, and they receive new life in him. It's on the hills of that that the religious people come to Jesus again in our story this morning. And they begin to question him, essentially, why aren't you being more religious? So mainly looking at the practice of fasting and what that looks like. And what Jesus begins to show to us, and I believe what he's teaching here, is to be able to understand the compare and contrast of what we call behavior modification versus spiritual transformation. So class, that's why I have the oranges, all right? So 
both of these are oranges. They look like oranges. If I can pass them around, and this wasn't, a, this was a normal class, you know, handful of kids, um, not as many kids as there are in here right now. Um, you would smell, they both smell like citrus orange. They both were plucked from an orange tree. Uh, this one in itself was freshly plucked, and then I purchased it from Circle, or from Quick Trip across the street. Um, fresh produce there. And then this one right here, I actually plucked on my way into work. Right down where College and Broadway is, there's all those oranges there, and you pluck them. Um, they look the same, but they're not. Here's why. If I peeled this one, um, I'd peel it and I would eat it and it would taste like an orange and it'd be delicious. I can make orange juice out of it. I can make all sorts of good drinks out of it, right? Um, on this one, however, if I peeled it and I ate it, I ate it, it would not taste like an orange because this is called an ornamental orange, right? And for those of you who haven't been living in Arizona for that long or just didn't know, we have these dumb things called ornamental oranges, right? <laughs> you know why? I don't know why, right? Um, they look good. They look like oranges. They look, I mean, we, we like how beautiful they look, and so we put them down streets, and we put, let them grow on a tree. We water them, and so they look like an orange, but they serve no purpose like an orange. But on the outside, they look exactly the same. But we, as Arizonians, which I'm now officially accepting that now, we do dumb stuff like this, but we do it, right? Jesus' point is when he comes into Jerusalem, in the greater Jerusalem world, everyone looks like oranges, there are people who externally are doing everything externally that Jesus is doing. So side by side, there are people who are raising their kids the same way, that are trying to teach their kids about God. They're looking at the word of God. They're trying to follow the word of God. They are religious people. Then you come Jesus, and Jesus is doing the same things. He's instructed the same thing. However, when you get to the very heart of it, when you get to the inside of it, they're wildly different. And so on one hand, when it comes to behavior modification, it is I will do and do and do, and if I do everything that God calls me to do, then I will become godly. And that would be behavior modification. If I do all the right things, I do what I'm supposed to do, I don't do what I'm not supposed to do, then I will become godly. However, spiritual transformation on the inside is God loves me, I'm accepted. God in me makes me godly. One is what I need to do and what I need to get done, and then the result is godly. Godliness. The other one is God is the one who makes me godly, so the result is godliness. Interesting enough, they both have the same goal. They both want to be godly. They both want to have the appearance of godliness. One is one that is resting in the work of God, and the other one is resting in the work of man. And Jesus is coming to try to divide those and say, hey, what I'm bringing is not a new religion. It's actually following Jesus, and that Jesus is the one that begins to change us, transform us from our hearts he begins to transform us from the inside out, not from the outside in. Because you can do all the right things and be living a very, very godlike living life, but you still just may, may be an ornamental orange. And at the end of the day, that's dumb. Uh, because why waste your time? Religion in itself is very boring. But if you're truly trying to know God and you you're want to know Jesus, then that comes from knowing Jesus and the external will be changed because of transformation by the Holy Spirit. And that's what Jesus is ultimately talking about today. So if we pick up here, if you pick up with me in verse 18, we'll begin to understand what he's talking about. Verse 18 says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And so now they come to Jesus, the religious people, and they're trying to figure him out, right? Understand their context. Their context is saying, here's what we know to be true about religious people. Religious people do a lot of things, and they do a lot of good things, but one of the things that they do is that they fast. 
And so the, the Pharisees, right, we learned about them last week, their disciples are going, the Pharisees fast. Let me pause real quick and talk a little bit about fasting from their perspective. Um, in the Old Testament, you, have, you see people fasting. In fact, there's only one actual area where it's explicit that they should fast, and that was known as the Day of Atonement, or you may know it as Yom Kippur. And, and you read about it in Leviticus chapter 16, which I know many of you guys probably just happened to be reading Leviticus chapter 16 this morning on your way in, because that's, that's normal for us, right? Leviticus chapter 16, you have this day of atonement. And this is what this day was for. People of God will fast. There was a solemn fast because of this day. And the priest would, would um, take a bath, and then he'd put on special clothes, and he would take a goat, and then he would, he would slaughter that goat um, for the uh, sins of himself and his family. He'd take another goat, and he would slaughter that goat, representing the sin of all the people. And then he would take another goat, and then he would lay his hands on that goat. And then what they would do with that goat is because laying hands on it would symbolize that all the sin of the people were on this goat, and then they would get the goat out of, the, out of there, and it, and it would chase the goat all the way out into the wilderness. Now, here's what was happening. It was symbols of saying, because of sin, there's a penalty of sin, and another took on that penalty. It was the goat, and the blood was shed. And then because God desires to remove our sin as far away from us, as far as the east is from the west, as the Bible talks about, that we should not be treated as our sins deserve, that it was a symbol of laying the hands on one goat, and then that goat would be kind of pushed away, um, giving us a symbol of that sins are removed. And so they would fast on that day. What we, we, we understand is that the fulfillment of that day is in Jesus, that he's come to take upon and bore upon himself the penalty of our sin. And that also that it is in Christ that our sins by faith in him are removed, but past, present, and future that we're forgiven. And so he, he is ultimately the fulfillment of that. Well, that was a fast. We see people fasting because they want wisdom from God. We see people in the Old Testament fasting because they're lamenting. But there was fasting, and fasting wasn't a bad thing. It was a good thing. But what happens with religion often, what we naturally do, and we meaning us, is that we take usually good things and we make them main things. But all of these things were means for us to remember God and to know God. But what happens is we take these things as the ultimate things, as if these are the things that make us godly as opposed to God himself making us godly. Well, the Pharisees and the disciples of John, they're used to seeing people fast. In fact, the Pharisees, they didn't just fast once a year. They actually fasted twice a week, right? And so they would be fasting, and they're looking at Jesus, and they're going, what are you doing? I mean, besides hanging out, partying with these, these people— and you have these followers, and it seems like what you're doing is so easy. I don't understand. If you're going to be religious, why aren't your disciples fasting? Meaning that's what good Jewish people do. They fast. Or if we can use it in our language, the good Christian people do X, Y, and Z. And you can fill in the blank. All really good things. Go to church. Read your Bible. Pray. Sing. Dance. Lift your hands when you worship. Actually sing when the songs are on the screen. Like good Christian things that, that, that Christians do, right? Well, Jesus continues and he answers this question to their religiosity because the reality of it is, remember, it's behavior modification versus transformation. Here's what Jesus says, verse 19. He says, and Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. He asks this rhetorical question, then he answers it. And, and, and interesting enough, they're already upset with Jesus from last week's story that he was eating with prostitutes and gamblers and tax collectors, sinners. Because eating with somebody meant that you associated with him. And they did not like the fact that he was associating with them because the Pharisees thought the way that you obeyed was by separating yourself. Jesus comes in and he gets in the midst of our life and lives with us and yet remains holy and in his holiness and his grace pulls us out. 
So they, they already don't like Jesus because he looks like a party animal. And then they ask him a question about religious things like fasting, and his first reference is to another party, a wedding. And weddings in that day were parties, right? Like legitimate parties. Not to say that our weddings today aren't parties, but their weddings would last up to seven days. That's partying, right? It's what you've been doing all week. Shit, there's a wedding, right? There's a... <laughs> There's a, there's a lot, right? And in fact, if you were, if you were um, a widow, so, so your spouse died and you were being remarried, you would only get 72 hours, only 72 hours of party. But if you were getting married for the first time, it'd be seven days. And the way that that would work in the Hebrew culture is everyone would be waiting for the bridegroom. And the thought was he'd be with his boys doing whatever, and then, and then they'd be waiting for him for the wedding. And once him and his boys got done, they'd be like, the party's going to start, and everyone would run, and they'd rush into the wedding, and they would start, they would start doing what they did did uh, to have a good time. And Jesus is saying, when it comes to the bridegroom, are the guests, are they supposed to fast during that moment? Like fasting is a solemn moment to, that you long for God, to draw near to God. He's saying, not in that, because you know what, know what the requirements were for the guests? To sing, dance, eat, and drink. That's it. <laughs> and Jesus is saying, w- when the bridegroom is there, they're supposed to celebrate. And now what Jesus is saying is, I'm the bridegroom. I'm here. People have been longing and waiting for this show to begin, and I'm here now. I- I'm actually with them. And so they're not going to fast. They're not going to be solemn. What they, are in, what they have in me is everything that the Old Testament scriptures uh, talked about is being fulfilled in me. That new life is in me. Forgiveness is in me. Joy is in me. Like there, There's moments right now to celebrate. Okay, there's an implication for us, those of us in this room who would call ourselves Christians, We understand that life is not always a party, and we're going to talk about that in the next verse, but there should be celebration in the fact that we're saved by grace. Not our circumstance, but there should be celebration that we're saved by grace. People all the time, as Christians, we say, God is good. And it's like, okay, can you tell your face that? God is good. I'm a Christian. He's so amazing in my life. Right? And it's like, oh, I can't wait to sign up for that, right? There's this lack of joy when good news has come in Jesus because we let our circumstances and our situation begin to dictate what we know about God as opposed to God to be able to dictate what we know about our circumstances and our situation. Jesus is saying these people, they came to this party and they came from normal life, but when they were there and the bridegroom was there, there there was much to celebrate. There was much to enjoy. For those of us who follow Jesus, there's much to celebrate and there's much to enjoy. Think of it like this when it comes to just the forgiveness of sins relationally. We've all had friends and spouses and neighbors and people we know that we've sinned against. And we sense the guilt that we've sinned against them. And we desperately want them to forgive us. And for whatever reason, we haven't felt or received that forgiveness yet. Like, that happens. I know it doesn't happen in your marriage, but in some marriages, um, there's these moments where you sin against your spouse and you want them to forgive you and you, you feel like you don't have it yet and you feel that, that weight. But just not all marriages, but some marriages, that, that happens. Um, you know what it's like when you finally re- receive that forgiveness? How, how good you feel, how your life feels great. It's like Red Bull. You feel like, I have, I have wings now, right? Because that, that, that joy that you have there. So when Holly and I were going through premarital uh, counseling, uh, if you can call it that, <laughs> gauntlet, um, when we were going through, uh, <laughs> is, 
and and um, we we were we came from we come from different backgrounds, right? Just way different backgrounds, and we could talk about that for days. But my past was different than her past. Oftentimes in the church, you go, "Does he have a past? Does she have a past?" If you're alive, you have a past, <laughs> right? And so. But my past was different than hers, and primarily when it came to my sexual past versus hers. And so when we're going through premarital, and you just kind of, you know, you, you say everything about who you are and where you've been and what you've done. Some of you guys are like, no, I don't want to get married anymore. <laughs> you just let the hand go. Sorry, we'll just be friends. Um, <laughs> is you, 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 go through, you go through this, and I just remember going like, man, like, like if you had to think of it, like Holly, like I came in with like, bags, right? And I'm just kind of like dragging my bags in. And then Holly came in with like a, with a little penny purse, <laughs> right? And we're, we're, we're talking about that, right? Now, by no means, and she would not want me to say by any means that she's perfect, right? No, no means. But I kept thinking like, man, is she going to forgive me? Is she going to forgive me? And we're meeting and meeting and meeting, and I'm like, man, is she going to forgive me? And one, one day, we're meeting with a couple that was doing our premarital. And she goes, you know what? Now I know why it's been hard for me to, to forgive Ricardo. I'm like, you know, I'm halfway asleep, and then I wake up, and I'm like, she goes, because when I look at my life, you know, like, I'm comparing my sin, which is sin, to his. And somehow I'm thinking his is more than mine, but the reality of it is the same blood that was needed to forgive me is the same blood that was needed to forgive him. And so if God didn't withhold forgiveness from me, how can I withhold forgiveness from Ricardo? And I was like, amen, sister. (laughs) (laughs) Praise him, (laughs) right? (laughs) And it was awesome. She got the gospel. That's why she's wifey for me. When she calls wifey, come, wifey comes up, right? That feeling, though, of that guilt just being removed, right? Like, I knew I was bringing something into the relationship that was my fault, and I could not change it, and it was on me. It was my responsibility. But because of her understanding the grace of God, she was able to remove that from me and that the relationship may continue. When Jesus shows up and he talks about himself being the bridegroom, He's saying, people have been waiting. Goats could never forgive you, but God could. And I came to be the true sacrifice. And if you were Jewish, you would have understood the the imagery of him being the bridegroom. Because in the Old Testament, God himself would constantly refer to himself as the husband who was married to his people, the people of Israel, who were constantly cheating on him. They were just adulterous people that they would run away and run away, and God would pursue and pursue. And he says there's going to be a day when one would come, ultimately the Messiah, God himself, that he would come and he would begin to take away the sins, that he'd be able to forgive, that he would be able to renew those blessed covenantal vows that he had with us, and that he would have a covenant with us that would never be broken again, no matter how much we would sin, that we would be his and he would be ours, and that we understand that the sin, our sin, individually and corporately, have been removed because he's taken upon the guilt upon himself Guys, when it comes to forgiveness, whether it's in your marriage or in any way, when you forgive somebody, you are bearing the weight. You, you are saying, I'm not just excusing you, right? Because we do really good at excusing people. Oh, you robbed my house? It's okay, right? No, it's not okay. But to forgive somebody is saying, I'm going to bear the pain, and I'm not going to treat you as your sins deserve. And we know that's painful and that's hard because the most forgiving person in the world, Jesus Christ, came into this world to be the bridegroom ultimately that would end up on a cross, that he would bear the penalty of our sin and that he would not treat us as our sins deserve. And Jesus is saying, I'm here. That good news that I'm offering my people is here. And so why would I have them fasting when they see me? Why would I have them fasting? And so he tells the religious people, you're just trying to be 
an ornamental orange. And that's a lot of work, and it's not good. It doesn't taste good. There's no true fruit in it. What I'm trying to bring for people is an understanding of true fruit, transformation. And that happens in right relationship with me, not just right action. And so Jesus doesn't just stop and say that life with Jesus is one long party and it's amazing. It lasts three to seven days, right? That's not what he's saying. But he's saying there is joy in his grace. There is an understanding that when we understand that we are forgiven, that we've sinned against him, and it's our guilt that's on our shoulders, and he willingly, in his love, he lifts that off, man, it's good news. It's good news. Well, Jesus says, okay, but there are moments that reality sets in. The reality is that we live in the tension of what we call the already and not yet. Already the groom has come. Already he's established for us a meal to eat with him. But there's a greater meal that he's established for us, a true banquet. He says, I go and I prepare a place for you that we have not yet experienced yet. We have hints of it. We have taste of it. We have not fully eaten what we would eat. But now, that's already, but now what we have is brokenness and sin in, in my life and your life and the life of the world. And Jesus says this in verse 20. He says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. Meaning already there should be celebration and joy that's given to us by the grace of God, but there should also be moments of fasting, of solemn, solemnly looking towards God, longing for God, because we still sin, this world is still broken, it's not the way it's supposed to be. That we live in that tension as Christians, and so Jesus by no means is saying fasting is wrong or bad. He's saying, no, no, there's moments and there's seasons for us to do that, but not for external reasons, but because of what we long for internally, the relationship to be fully renewed and fully realized with Jesus. Think of it this way. Um, many of us know what it's like to live in seasons of joy, right? There, there, there are moments, and there have been moments in my Christian life where I'm like, I could take one more step, and I might be in heaven. Not because of what I've done, just because God is so good. He speaks to me. He talks to me. I feel like I can hear him all the time. I love everybody, and everybody doesn't love me, but I still love them. And then there's like a day later, I'm like, I can't stand people, man. I, I, this life sucks. It's horrible. All right? And like we go back and forth. And then many of us have seasons. If you've been a Christian for some period of time, you have at least one season where you go, I wish I can go back there. I wish I can go back to that time. Sometimes it's when you're in college, sometimes it's when you're in high school, sometimes it's when you were newly married, sometimes it was when you had kids and they were living in the house. There's some season that you go back and you go, man, for whatever reason in that period of time in my life, God was easier to follow. I feel like I wanted to do what God wanted to do. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not the only one who has been there. You guys are like, oh no, always been godly, right? <laughs> there, there are zones that we get into and then we're just, Lord, Lord, you are, you are present. And there's moments where we're going like, man, why does it seem like he's so distant? He says, and in that day, that, that, that's a realization that's going to happen, and many of us live in that tension. That as Christ followers, there's moments and seasons where we go, man, I feel like he's so near to me, and then there's moments where he's distant. And so the question would be, okay, what do we do in those moments? What do we do in those moments where it seems like God is distant? Well, here's what the religious people would do. That they would sense that as usually there was sin in your life. Um, usually that means there was separation from God, which the reality of it is, they write. Like, when it comes to our life, just assess your own life. The Bible says examine yourself. Ex examine yourself. You look at your own life. When it comes to distance from God, there's a few things, and this lift is not exhaustive. But one, it could be sin. Like, you find yourself just giving yourself the things that God does not like, that God does not for. Just because God is a God of grace is not that he just co-signs sin. No, he forgives sin because it's wrong. He's not saying, here's a license, keep doing it. He's saying, I'm redeeming you that your desires are not for that anymore. 
And so that actually begins to draw, the, we draw us away from God. The other thing is just the cares of this world, right? Like Jesus says this, it's the cares of this world that actually chokes out the word, what we know to be true about God. And here are the cares of the world, normal things, good things that we make main things. I want a spouse. I've always wanted a spouse. I feel like I've been living like a good Christian guy, a good Christian girl, and why? And then it draws you away. Um, you are married. Lord, did I marry the right person? Um, are my kids going to live in a very safe environment? I, I want them to be cared for. Are they okay? Are they okay? And so everything becomes around your kid. Um, what about this job? What about my career? What about my grandkids? What about my legacy? What about my 401k? And it becomes so much about good things, right things, that we make the main thing, and then God himself just kind of sits on the outskirts, and we find ourselves distant. That many of us don't, we say, our, our words, we put God at the center. He's the bridegroom. We're celebrating in him. But the reality of it is, all we got to think about is, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you wake up? That's probably what is at the center. That's probably what's there. Good things that we make the main thing. We find ourselves distant from God, and we can't even hear from him. Listen, that's not you. That's all of us, myself included. But if I'm not careful, there will be things that begin begin to take the place of God in my life. And I still trust in God, but it's so easy to get things replaced. Well, now Jesus says what the religious people would say to do here is go back to the structure. If you go back to doing all the right things, then you'll know that you're godly. And Jesus begins to correct that and say, not behavior modification. It is transformation. Not from the outside in, it had never happened, but from the inside out. Here's what he says here in these two illustrations he gives us. Um, in verses 21 and 22, he says this, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth, cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old, and the worst tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So we use kind of everyday things in their culture. They're not necessarily everyday things to us to communicate something. First he says, if you got this old shirt, you know that, that old shirt that you love that you got in junior high school and you could still fit it and you're like, man, I'm, I'm doing it, right? You have that shirt and then there's a patch in it and you're like, what am I going to do? And you get a new shirt and you sew it on there. The problem is the new shirt hasn't been washed yet. And when you do wash it and you do dry it, it rips apart, ruining both. He says it's going to tear apart. It doesn't work. They don't fit. And then he says, right, you guys know what you're supposed to do with wine, right? You're supposed to put oat in the, No, we don't know, right? He says, this is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to take, um, don't put new wine in old wineskins. So when they had these wineskins, you'd put new wine in new wineskins. And then there'd be a process where they'd be fermenting and gases would release and they'd stretch and stretch and stretch. And they'd become old and brittle, but they can hold old wine, but not new wine. But if all of a sudden you poured the old wine out, um, for the dead homies or something, I don't know. You pour that out, and then, and then, you, then you, would take, you would take new wine. <laughs> Come on, guys. Then you would take new wine. <laughs> if you put new wine and then you put it into the old wineskins, they'd burst. So here's what Jesus was saying. If you try to go back to the same religious structures, it's not going to work. Here's, so, so basically... You cannot, out of an orange seed, produce an ornamental orange. Out of an ornamental orange, you cannot produce an orange. They are diametrically opposed. If you go back to the same religious structures is if I obey, therefore God accepts me, you will never understand that I'm already accepted and I'm loved, therefore I obey. If you start here with behavior modification, you may act like a good Christian, you may look like a good Christian, 
It doesn't mean that you understand the love of God. But if you understand the love of God, and you are connected to him who is the branch, the vine, ultimately, that we grow from, who we get all of our strength from, then, then you begin to listen and know and grow in the way that God calls you to be. And in and itself is not mechanical growth. You can't produce this. This is only something that happens by God. This is only something that happens by the Spirit. And so Jesus is saying is, don't, don't, don't question me about being religious, right? Because that was the original question, remember? Why aren't your people fasting? And his whole point is, we don't fast just because to look like good religious people. My people will fast because they long for me, because they love me. Think of it this way. When I, do, when I meet with young guys, husbands like myself, and they say, you know what I want? I just want to look like a good husband. And I said, that, that goal is weak. Here's why. We can fake it till we make it. We're all good at that. My name's not even Ricardo, right? <laughs> we, could, we, could, we could fake it. We could, we could look like good husbands. We can look like good mothers. We can look like good people. We can look like good Christians. That's not why Jesus came. It wasn't behavior modification. Now, if you, I said, here, if you want to be a good husband, love your wife. How about you start loving your wife and all the other stuff would come? When it comes to being a follower of God, and when it understands being the way that Jesus is calling us to, away from behavior modification but in transformation, understand that God loves you and love him. And love him with your whole heart and your strength and your mind, your body, your soul, your finances, your friends, your family, everything. Love him that way and you'll see an orange, a real orange, not an ornamental orange. It may, time, it may take time, there's a process, but, but it happens. So what's a so what that Jesus is talking about here? Because if you're anything like me, you go, okay, I'm kind of confused here. Because it seems like you're saying, if I read my Bible and I pray and I do really good Christian things, I'm bad and probably dumb. <laughs> but if I'm a Christian, I won't do any of those things, but then I'll be good. Okay, that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> what I'm saying is this. If you are reading your Bible to look like a good Christian, if you are praying because that's what good Christians do, if you are coming to service because it's just what good Christians do, um, that may last for a little bit, but that doesn't mean that it's transforming your heart. Now, if you understand spiritual transformation, that you are so accepted and that you were loved by God, that on one hand, you were so bad, your sin, that the God of this universe had to die for you, but at the same time, you were so loved and that he was pleased to do it, and you understand who he is, then, when you come to your Bible, the reason why you come to your Bible is because you're connected to the vine. You know what God has already given you through his grace. And so you read the Bible to get to know the God of the Bible. When you understand that you were loved and accepted by God, and he's the one who initiates the relationship, he's the one that sustains the relationship, and he and his grace is the one that will complete the relationship, no matter how distant I get, no matter how far away I get, I can understand who he is. And so when I pray, I don't pray to make God love me. I pray because he loves me and he hears me. And he wants to answer my prayers. When I fellowship with Christians, I fellowship because this is another means by which I get, begin to receive what he's given me freely, his grace, what he's already has for me, what the plans that he has for me. I understand these things through these disciplines. I fast. And the reason why I fast is not to look like someone who fasts. In fact, Jesus says, don't even tell anybody you're fasting. People walk around like, what's wrong? Are you hungry? No, I'm fasting. I'm trying to be a good Christian. Because that's not it. But if I fast because I know that in my life I'm longing for other things other than him, and I want to be able to redirect my desires and my passions out of the one who at infinite cost gave himself for me, that's why we do those things. As a good Christian, which is an oxymoron, 
but someone who is loved by God. We read our Bibles daily because we get to know the God of the Bible. We pray daily because we have a relationship with him. We give, we serve, we fellowship with other Christians because there's no other way for us to be able to access what God has already given us. We do not do these things in order to get God. We already have God, and abundantly, and he's promised this, we access it through those means. And so when the religious people come to Jesus and they say, how come they're not doing it? Jesus doesn't say, they never will do it. First and foremost, what does he do? He points them to, the, to himself, the bridegroom. Once we understand the bridegroom, his love for us, his care for us, his concern for us, his forgiveness towards us, his grace towards us, then we begin to be connected to him. And it's him who produces in us spiritual transformation. And we follow the one who has come before us in Christ Jesus. Amen? I want to be able to close this morning with a prayer, giving that it's St. Patrick's weekend. And St. Patrick, who did not drink green beer, um, but I got a green slide for you. It's one of my favorite prayers in all of church history. Um, and so I'll pray it with you guys, and you can bow your heads or you can read with me, and we'll close. Christ with me and Christ before me. Christ behind me and Christ in me. Christ beneath me and Christ above me. Christ to my right and Christ on my left. Christ when I lie down and Christ when I sit. Christ when I stand. Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me, and Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, and Christ in every eye that sees me, and Christ in every ear that hears me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that every single thing we're talking about in the Gospel of Mark, and every single story, and every single parable, and every single thing in the Old Testament, and everything that we do, Lord, points to Jesus. And that this life is about Jesus, and it's about your Son, Jesus Christ, who was here for us. So I do pray that we would desire holiness, but a holiness that flows out of the Holy One. I pray that we would desire godliness, but godliness that flows from the most godly one, God himself. I pray that we would desire righteousness, but not a righteousness that comes from our own, but a righteousness that comes from Christ. God, I pray that we would desire you because you first desired us. And so Jesus, I pray that we would be able to center our entire lives around you, that those of us in this room, that sense and feel distant, God, that we'll be drawn closer and closer to you through your word, through prayer, through the fellowship of believers, Lord, through caring, through serving, and the way that you've cared and served us through the cross and the resurrection. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.